attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Hello and welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. This week's guest on the podcast, Al Stein. Al Stein uh, came to me through George Sachs. Uh, I met him out in Mendocino, California, where he lives. He invited me up to the house, and uh, Mendocino is a little bit removed. If you've ever been there, it's obviously incredibly nice, um, and he lives right on the water. It was really gorgeous, um, but no cell service. Uh, I didn't have any Wi-Fi. Uh, if you know me personally, you know that was a tough day. <laughs> but we had a great time. Uh, I learned a lot about Al, and uh, he is quite a character. He was at camp in the 50s, and uh, he went off and lived in Alaska, which you'll hear about a little bit, and kind of lost track of everybody, and they lost track of him. And then by happenstance, he ran into George Sachs about 20 years ago and rekindled uh, a classic camp relationship. And so George suggested I talk to him, and I did, and it was great. We had a fantastic time. So you're going to enjoy this. Before we get to that, of course, as always, uh, Camp Ojibwa Bricks of Fame are still available. You can go over to the website, campojibwahistory.org, click on Walk of Fame, and get your brick. Likewise, uh, some new content up this week, several new videos, as well as uh, Medicine Men. Medicine Men from uh, 72, 73, some from the 2000s. Go check it out. Uh, More will go up as soon as I get them. Okay, enough of that. Here we go. Al Stein on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. State your name and years at camp. Um, Alan Stein, and I was at Ojibwa from 51 when I was seven until 61. Awesome. How did you first come to know about Ojibwa? I don't know. Um, I did. I found myself uh, going down Lakeshore Drive to uh, the Chicago Northwestern Station one evening, and uh, I was told that I was going to camp. Hmm. I didn't know what that was. So no one had come over and shown you pictures or talked about camp or anything like that? Yeah. It's possible. Or maybe my dad had found out about it. Yeah. So off you go. You go to the Northwestern Station, hop on a train. It's uh, it's dark, and uh, you know, I'm holding my dad's hand. We're going up to the train platform. Everybody's kissing and hugging. And we go into the Pullman car, um, and there's this big guy with a bald head who I later found out was Sid Novak. Mm. And uh, my dad kind of does a handoff, puts me into one of these uh, sleeper bunks. It was, it was Pullman. 
So there were sleeper bunks with, as I recall, um, curtains. And uh, everybody was uh, reading Mad Magazine and throwing tennis <laughs> balls and having a good old time. So I settled in there and the train took a lurch. Lights of the city go by, suddenly it's all starry and next thing I know I'm waking up in Eagle River. Hmm. So it's overnight. Was there someone else in your in your berth with you? Do you remember? Or did you no, just, I don't think so. You just had your own, right? Yeah. And I think I think it was the Flambeau four four hundred. They called it four hundred because the diesel trains were able to make it from Minneapolis to Chicago in four hundred minutes. Oh. Pretty fast. Yeah. Okay. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, so you get to camp. What's the first thing you remember about Camp Ojibwa? Well, I remember getting in the big red truck and singing, here's to Camp Ojibwa. Hmm. Um, and driving on the side road, seeing some horses in the field, and then seeing the big H pier and, uh, and the campus on the right. Hmm. It was... Uh, it's great, great thing for a kid. I'd never seen so many trees, you know, white stem, birch. And sure. It was the Northwoods. Yeah. And so it's a big change from being in the city all your life. And I lived in the city. Yeah. Unfortunately, most of the birch are gone now. But the, they are. I lost well, you know, the kids peel the birch and then start fires with it. So that's how that's how birch fall, kids. You all know who I'm talking to, too. Basically, every camper from the 70s. They killed all the birch. Mostly, I mean, it's just they must have been big birch. From sure, the, the forest has changed significantly now. There's still a few birch, but um, nothing like it used to be. Mm -hmm. It's mainly pines. Well, that's a transition anyway. Natural transition. Yeah. Paul Bunyan came in there with Babe and logged it all out. There you go. That's it. <laughs> so that first cabin, what cabin were you in? I was in one. And do you remember anyone who was in your cabin with you? Um, you know, I think Neil Tushin was in there. Uh, may have been Neil Mall. I can't recall. A uh, guy been in a trucker from Indiana, I think it was. Um, and uh, I have to look at the picture to remember the rest of the guys but mm. we all were uh, I think taps blew and we threw our stuff in and went piled out went to the mess hall is that how it is now you mm. line up in front of the mess hall put your hand on your heart <laughs> say the pledge and and shout out not exactly we, we've changed up a little bit but it's the same in spirit certainly that first year you get there now what's your camp day like or early on, I mean, maybe you don't remember exactly that year, but what, in general, what's your camp day look like? Uh, well, I just remember some of the things that, that we did and the routine, the general routine of, you know, dip or shower, boy. Um, rise and shine, boys, dip or shower. <laughs> I don't think anyone who's been there can ever forget that. <laughs> or, or the thought of jumping in the lake in the morning. Um, I heard George Saxon's, George was in my cabin later on, and, all the way through, and uh, I know he like preferred the shower, and I think a lot of the times I was in there with him. Mm. Uh, so that was, I remember that vividly. I remember the great Saturday night steak events, um, and of course, you know, baseball and 
all the sports archery um, rifle shop I mean you know you name it and and I we did go on courses I still have a scar to prove it mm. Wow. So shortly thereafter, they think they eliminated. I was going to say, 51's pretty late. I, I don't know what year they go, but it's... Now, at that point, they didn't have the horses at camp, right? They didn't have their own stables anymore? They had moved... I think they were still there. That, you know, I thought I saw some horses. may not have... It, was, it would have been out in the... What was the name of that field out there? Well, we call it the far field now. Far field. So, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I know at some point, Al... Um, it became cost prohibitive to keep the horses himself year round. So he started uh, basically taking campers to a local horse place during yeah, the summer. I also remember doing that. Yeah. And I think it was more about the insurance than it was the, the horses the, the themselves. The horse that had a mind of its own oh, boy. and decided to dismount me by running under a tree. Oh. He was, he was short enough to clear the branch. Uh, <laughs> I almost cleared it, but my scalp did. Oh. Wow. Well, I got some few, I, they didn't stitch it in those days. They just tied the hair together. <laughs> eventually, yeah. It wasn't very big. Sure, but, sure. Yeah. You know, it's part of growing up. Part of growing up. Wow. It was a tougher time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, wh- what were the sports or uh, activities that you really liked? What were the ones that really yeah, stuck out I for was, you? I was a klutz, essentially. Uh, couldn't catch a ball. Uh, could rarely hit a ball. So I gravitated to two places, well, more than that, but I gravitated to um, the rifle range, and I've got my bronze uh, NRA badge that I earned when I was seven or eight years old. Wow. Uh, I, was a, I was a pretty good shot. Still am. Uh, and to the waterfront. Mm. So I learned how to swim pretty early. Uh, I think Dave Baum taught me. Uh, and. Uh, Everything that had to do with the water, skiing, sailing, um, you know, I was around the third island pretty early. Mm. It, was a, it was the first and third island, right? We didn't go around, the, maybe we went around the second island those days, I can't remember, but I know we went around the third island. How far is that, two miles, <laughs> three miles? Three days? I, <laughs> I tell people that the old guys can't believe it, but today the swim area ends where the raft is. We can't even swim to the first island. Really? Yeah. We're not allowed to swim past that. Why, are there too many motorboats? Well, I mean, I think that's the, the that and insurance and lit- litigious oh, society, I think, is yeah. the thing. Yeah, so the swimming across the lake or the swimming around the islands, it's just such a foreign concept to the kids today because they can't well, get up there. Even thought the Loch Ness Monster was there. And, that's, that's reasonable. I don't know if you've seen a muskie before. I'm sure you have. Yeah. <laughs> it might as well be the Loch Ness Monster. Oh, sure. When I was there, there was, you, it was you'd have to fish all day long in the... Uh, Lily ponds, pits mm. that were south of camp, I think, to get anything, uh, if you were lucky. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to go out and get one every day, but I would say at least once every other season, a, a cabin one kid will pull one in on a cane pole. Yeah. <laughs> and needless to say, we'll scare to death every cabin one kid for the next two or three years. Yeah. So I I don't know if any of the other guys remember this, but uh, we started out water skiing uh, with a 25-horsepower a mercury engine on a, a, a wooden boat that had um, plywood um, laminates on it. Mm. And it barely got us up when we were kids, I think. I think the consulars could get up if they 
put their tushies on the edge of the um, of the dock mm. said hit it but you had to say hit it and it was pretty good they got a run up on you and you either got pulled out of your skis or you got up <laughs> and then it was I mean that was for, to me one of the highlights of my life was just racing along in the water you know at high speed and jumping the wakes mm. um I was just in heaven doing that. Yeah. Very cool. Did they also have, I've seen some footage of, what would I call it? Uh, it's like a sled with a scooter handle kind of a thing built in, but it was uh, dragged we, by the we boat. We, what we had, I think to get started, there was a piece of plywood with a rounded front. Mm. And you kind of hung on that for a while. And then afterward, and then it had a rope. Mm. And from there you learned to kneel, and from there you could stand up on it. Gotcha. The hang of being on the, on the water and being towed, and they let you use skis. And I can't remember when I first skied. It was probably by the time I was nine or ten, I was skiing. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, you mentioned riflery. It yeah. stuck out for you. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Um, well, there was five or six um, stalls, sort of like a horse stall. Uh, it was open on both ends. Um, so right next to the wood shop, or the craft shop. And uh, there were moldy World War II um, cotton mattresses there. <laughs> with a five-gallon um, uh, coffee can. And so you had to account for all the bullets you were given. Mm. And you were only given a few at a time. It was a one-shot rifle. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was a bolt action. So you put the bullet in, put the bolt forward, took aim, and you had a target, which was not very far, maybe 25 feet or 25 yards. I can't, you know, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And you, it was very tightly controlled. There was a counselor who said everyone ready and then they taught you how to lie down and uh, the proper position of your feet and your elbows and so forth mm. and um, that got me used to guns um, and uh, I was pretty good I get in the bullseye pretty often nice. um, and then later on my dad had a lot of guns and we used to hunt in the uh, fields of, of, you know, three hours out of Illinois, of Chicago mm. in the flat farm fields for pheasants. And later on, I, uh, uh, when I went to Alaska, um, I shot a moose, which is right hanging right over there. <laughs> it's enormous. Yeah, it weighed over a ton. That was kind of a big target. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and then there were bears and mm. seals and everything. So because of Ojibwa, I think, I was able to, um, you know, follow that path. And I think it's a good path for kids to have, learn how to get the outdoors and hunt. And, um, there's no rifle range now. Nope, no rifle range. That's a pity. Yeah. I, I think it's an essential part of, of a guy's upbringing to be able to handle a gun. And of course, that was right after... Uh, uh, World War II, and I think there were strong feelings about having the kids know how to use a gun. Sure, absolutely. 
it was definitely a different mindset at the time. You talked about uh, being later in a cabin with George Sachs. Are there, who are some of the guys who you became friendly with that you stayed friends with over the years? Well, because I went to Alaska uh, and, you know, going to college, I, I really lost touch with everyone um, and just ran into George about 20 years ago uh, through happenstance. Uh, and now I've connected with uh, a few other guys like Chuck Green, who was my downstairs neighbor in Chicago. Mm. There weren't many people in my school. In Chicago. I went to Sullivan. And there weren't too many people from Sullivan went to Ojibwe when I, at least in my age group. Gotcha. There were, I mean, Stan, was his brother was from there. And, um, so, you know, just, I didn't even communicate with my family much when I was in Alaska because I was on an island. And in order to get out, you had to get on a tube radio set and go, uh, Port Protection, this is uh, calling KKI Ketchikan. Do you read me over? <laughs> KKKI Ketchikan, this is Port Protection. We read you loud and clear. Go ahead. And the whole country could hear you talk. Oh, wow. And then letters took a week to get to you. Oh, sure. So I lost touch. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely is not like today's world with a little internet, a little Wi Fi, you're set, ready to go. But that was all. Oh, there you go. That makes it easy. Yeah. You were there when it was a real. But, but, you know, there was George, and uh, I remember him very clearly. He didn't have uh, Jocko at the time. Mm. I think Jocko was born uh, after Kim. Yes. Um, Jocko, but, but this is sec- met, Jocko's second I, mention I, on this podcast. Now, he's quite a gentleman, and mm. uh, I think he's a great addition to camp. George or Jocko? Jocko. I see. <laughs> I'm sure George is. Good. Well, you know, I mean, he's no Jocko. Uh, Jocko, you know, Jocko Jocko's really gets around. He, he truly is one of a kind. Uh, he was just in New York not too long ago. I think he was there maybe at a concert or something like that. So people can check in with George about that. But I tell you, I've, I've been thinking a lot about my camp experience, and it's, uh, you know, you, you have certain generalized memories of uh, the types of events that occurred. For instance, the minstrel show was unforgettable. You know, we all put, not all of us, but some of us put on blackface and marched in and had these white gloves with uh, this purple white, black light. And you know, and you hit your knees and raise your hands up in the air while you're shaking them, and learn how to sing uh, college songs and songs from uh, Broadway shows. Mm. And it was it it created um, preferences of in your cultural life and in your physical being and in your character that stayed with you for your whole life. Yeah. It's a wonderful experience. I mean, so that was the minstrel. And the I was going to say, were you, were you a performance kind of kid no, before you got there? The opposite. I was like, get me out of here. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but... Pearl being Pearl, mm-hmm. everybody had to sing, and I'm glad I'm the better for it. Right. And, and I learned how to whistle, which I still enjoy doing. Ah. Um, and I remember 
running out of the uh, rec hall on a clear, cold night after seeing a great Western. Mm. You know, it was once a week. Now I guess they look on their iPads or something. And, then, and I remember some of the bizarre aspects of camp. For instance, the first powwow. Mm. I'm seven years old. <laughs> and, and I'm almost asleep when I hear boom, boom, boom out, out on the campus and a bunch of torches get lit and some crazy Jew in a, in a, uh, a loincloth with paint all over his face comes in holding a, 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 a hatchet. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, what is going on here? Um, and so we're marched out in silence, we're told to be quiet. Mm. We're marched, marched out into the woods, and, you know, the, the new braves are selected, and we're marched back in. I think having that kind of mystery in someone's life, in a young person's life, is um, a very positive... I had a friend up in Alaska who said, if you don't scare a child, he was Irish, you don't scare a child as it gives an Irish concept at some point in their life. Um, you don't bring out the best of them. It's so interesting. I, I don't know what, you know, guys like Mickey Schwartz would say, but he was my concert at one point. Maybe mm -hmm. Kevin won, I can't remember. But, uh, I don't know he, what he would say about that, but I think it was a positive experience overall. Yeah. And it was really nice to be a brave and be able to be in the... Uh, in the other in the, the other moccasins, so to speak. Sure. It's well. You mentioned uh, being scared as a child. Were there? Well, I wasn't really scared. Of, right. It was like a, kind of a mystery. Right. No, that's a different kind of scare. But were there um, sort of go-to ghost stories that the kids would tell? Were there, there were, characters there was that came around? Mm -hmm. uh, and there were some good storytellers. Um, I think Sid was pretty good. You know, there's a big bonfire. I don't know if that's still there. Mm -hmm. um, that was a great experience in the woods. Then there was tick day when somebody got a tick on the back of their on their back. Oh boy! The, the remedy in those days was to take a lighted cigarette and burn it out. I don't know if that's still a remedy. Uh, no. <laughs> no, I think we use <laughs> something a little more scientific these yeah, days. <laughs> and, and we didn't have Lyme disease that I know. Right. So, um, and then there were the beautiful nurses that all the guys were looking at. Mm. You know, if, if something went wrong with you, you're, and some guys were, something was going wrong with them all the time. Sure, of course. You know? That's one of those universal truths about Camp Ojibwa are the nurses. Now, do you have a sense of, like, were they nursing students? Were they actually women who were no, nurses? They or? were actually nurses. And mm -hmm. they wore white uniforms. They had white stockings and white hats. Mm -hmm. And you're at Most an, of the day. <laughs> and you're at an all-boys camp right. way away in the woods. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. And I think the concerts were lining up. There's something going wrong with them all the time. Sure. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, it was... Oh, there's the individual experience of events like, you know, Collegiate Week or uh, learning how to be part of a war canoe uh, or winning a race uh, on the waterfront, which I eventually, you know, was pretty good at. I, I never caught up with Steve Landsman or Rusty, Rusty Zwick, who I met uh, a few months ago. 
Mm. He's now a doctor up in Washington, orthopedic surgeon, I think it is. But um, uh, there's those individual events, and then there's the overall impressions of, um, I mean, here you have a significant population of Chicago, Chicago's elite going to camp every year and being exposed to uh, parents who at that time were really extraordinary individuals. I mean, what they had gone through, their parents had come over from mostly Russia and under terrible conditions. They grew up in Maxwell Street. They, you know, saved and excelled at business and were able to afford to send us to, to camp. And being exposed to those kind of people like Al and Sid and uh, the bombs uh, has a lasting impact on your character. It's not just the competition which becomes second nature to you, uh, and it is with me, but it's not just having that class A orientation towards life is knowing that you got to give back mm. what you received. And I think that um, that was demonstrated to us. And it's a lasting uh, impact of our experience. Mm. Nice. Yeah. You mentioned Collegiate Week. Yeah. Now, these days, and maybe all days. Collegiate Week has been the premier athletic event of Camp Ojibwa. Uh, what, what was your Collegiate Week experience like? Well, many. Um, you know, we learned the fighting songs of all the Big Ten schools. I eventually went to Wisconsin, but um, great songs. And it was, you really got into it. I mean, you were part of a, a team from the time as a little guy to, you know, to a teenager. Um, you really wanted to win. And at every activity, you gave it your all. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't have any, you know, individual recollections of a particular time, but I, I just overall remember it was a tremendous experience. Nice. Now you're there for 10 years, so you obviously move into being a junior counselor. Right. At some point. Last year is an interesting story. I, I decided I was going to be a lifeguard. Um, in Chicago, and I got assigned to a pool on Chicago Avenue, uh, which is a pretty rough area in those days. And uh, a black kid got pushed off the diving board, uh, or pushed a, a pushed a white kid off the diving board. And I didn't think it was a big deal. There were three of us lifeguards there. There was a fence that was about 20 feet high, chain link fence around the pool. Mm -hmm. So about, and this is 61, I think it was, and uh, about, I don't know, half hour later, it looked like West Side Story. There were these guys climbing the fence with baseball bats. Oh, boy. Going after the black guy. Well, we couldn't have that. And there was Puerto Ricans in the pool as well. And, um, so there was a Irish guy and a Norwegian guy and me, and uh, the Irish guy told me to get in the water, and pretty soon the guys that were climbing the fence, as they 
hit the ground, he'd throw them into the pool, and I'd, I'd try to drown mm. until the cops came, which came about a half hour later. But, you know, I was told that it was probably a, a good idea that we get out of there. Yeah. And we all left. Wow. Because um, it's a pretty tough neighborhood. So I called, called up camp, and I got a job as junior counselor for the rest of the summer. Mm. Nice. That happened pretty early in the summer. I think maybe before camp. Yeah. So you go up and you're a junior counselor. How is that experience different for you from being just a camper? Well, first of all, you know, you're a waiter. Mm. And so you, you see it from the other side of the table, so to speak. Sure. And, you know, you see these kids have food fights and being dorky. And it's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's nice to be able to tell them tales and... Uh, kids you grew up with, now you're mentoring them. It's a good feeling. Yeah. Nice. And did you, you also get to play in the leagues still as a junior counselor? Um, I don't recall if I did or not. I mean, mm. I was, I blocked out my baseball memory. <laughs> sure. <laughs> they were kind of like white from the memory bank. Sure. I, I remember uh, the competitions on the waterfront we had, maybe still do, we put out floats and there were lanes, mm-hmm. and there was a board below the pier. Dive off of that. Um, I just, I mean, I was a fish. I yeah. was there all the time. And on the chinning bar. Mm. Some of the junior counselors would go down there and help the smaller kids make their first chin. Mm. Is it still there? It's still there. I mean, that's like a rite of passage. Sure. Now, it's a manhood for a lot of guys. Chinning isn't isn't uh, that popular of a thing anymore. It's not a we don't use it in collegiate week or anything like that anymore. But um, but the bar still remains, and it's one of those sort of classic images of camp. It's been there forever, and we've got photos of like Al Schwartz doing chins. And I remember, I remember hanging there, probably when I was I was a little overweight as a kid. Then I got pretty muscular, but. I remember hanging there for, uh, uh, you know, five minutes before I could do my first chin. And mm. for weeks, I couldn't do a chin. And finally, getting the first one up. And then by the end of the summer, I was doing 50. Nice. And it was like all of the hormones were kicking in, you know. Uh, from 12 to 13, it was like a, um, a jet plane ride. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So when you... Think about camp. So you did nine years as a camper, one year junior counselor, and that was it. When you think about camp, I was in cabin thirteen. Went from one to thirteen. Okay. Who do you remember? Who your staff were in thirteen? Um, Lee Schneidman, I believe, was one. I think um, either Jimmy Maravitz or not Billy, because Billy was younger than me. I think, or maybe he was in a cabin. So. Nine years as a camper, one year on the staff. When you think back to camp now and you're walking around and talking to your friends, or what are the stories, what are the great stories that you have in your pocket that you talk about with camp? I talk with George and, and, and Chuck Green, and we, we generally don't have specific memories of, like, a certain baseball game sure. or a basketball game. And there were, it's just my memories is of all the, are, are of all of the great athletes that were there. I mean, there was Hershey Carl, hmm. and I remember him playing ball and just being in awe of how he moved and how he did his layups. Um, you know, the 
guys that were a year or two older than me um, were like in another uh, category of uh, fitness and ability. Um, and so you're always looking to the guys above you for, at least I was, as to how you should perform. And you're always looking to improve yourself. Mm -hmm. And so that's the it's one of the overall things. We, you know, we talked about some uh, tall fights. Uh, occasionally, I think later on, there were some shaving cream incidents. <laughs> you know, the, talk about the good times and, and the eccentricities of some of the guys. Like, uh, I mean, some of the names, I could say, like the turtle and his big uh, Ray-Ban black glass frames. Mm. And he's just a character. <laughs> younger brother. Mm -hmm. And we all became like family. Mm. We all, um, everybody knew your strengths and your weaknesses and um, didn't matter. Yeah. That was, that was a, it was like a big family. Yeah, I don't know if it still is. It is. Uh, I mean, it's definitely something you can still say about camp. That's one thing that holds true throughout the years: is that feeling of family, and whether you're ribbing somebody or, you know, or it's one of those sort of warrior night emotional moments where you're actually kind of openly expressing your fondness for one another. Whatever the case may be, it's family, and you get it. And no one. The, the kid getting picked on the most is still part of the family and it's all part of the crew and no one else outside of here better pick on him. <laughs> well, I remember the warrior night being selected and going into the um, concert lodge and the big round stones on the fireplace there. Um, and, you know, just the seriousness of it and uh, sort of the comradeship. I, I don't remember who was there. George was there, I'm pretty sure. can't remember if it was a Keishan who was there, but uh, that was a big deal. Becoming hmm. uh, a brave, less so, but um, you know, that's part of the mystery, I guess. Of course, you know, the first sign of Indians was when I saw the Camp Ojibwe sign. It was the first Jew in my probably 20 generations of my family who had ever seen an Indian. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I don't know if there's any Ojibwe's left. Um, learned about them later on. Mm -hmm. And up in Alaska, there's a lot of, uh, they call themselves Native Americans up mm -hmm. there. And they came from Japan. Um, they do totem poles, big totem poles. Mm. But I'll tell you what, some of the uh, areas that people probably don't uh, talk about often, and that is being outdoors uh, in the North Woods. Uh, I used to go down and read Thoreau when I was a teenager um, near the Concerts Lodge and look out at the water. And that's one of the reasons I went to Alaska and homesteaded. Um, because of my love of uh, the outdoors, I just didn't. I knew when I that first year that I, when I got up there, I didn't belong in a city. I belonged out in the country. Mm. Um, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe not. Um, it's not that I didn't 
like being in Chicago or other big cities. It's just I really prefer um, what you can find in nature. Yeah. And so that that's that's a benefit that you get from it. Um, you are now grown up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so after this long life, how did going to Camp Ojibwa affect that life? Um, well, again, in, I was very competitive as a, a fisherman. Um, and I think it helped me to get through college. Um, you know, it's a, a grind. Uh, to we, we put in long hours. Uh, Sometimes we didn't sleep for 40 hours uh, and worked hard through it. Um, uh, always tried to do my best, tried to um, be honest, um, uh, truthful in dealings, um, tried to be generous. Um, those are some of the enduring values I think I derived from camp. Nice. Mm -hmm. All right, I think that's it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Okay. Now, I know you don't normally get this mid-interview break, but as Al and I were sitting there chatting after he'd finished his interview, he remembered a great story, and uh, he asked me if we could go back and record it and put it in somewhere. And uh, normally, with a story like this, I would just kind of cut it back into the middle of the show somewhere. But it just really, um, well, you'll hear. It's the kind of story that kind of needed to stand on its own. Uh, it didn't really fit in anywhere else. So uh, enjoy this story, and I'll be back in a minute to close out the show. train uh, and the station had changed to Rhinelander so they bust us down there where, however they got us down there and we're standing on the tracks waiting to board when a drunk came down the street he had a paper sack with something in it and he was you know walking a little bit back and forth like swaying and he came up to Sid it's a big mistake on his part and he started saying you effing Jews and this and that about Jews. And Sid said, keep your mouth shut. There's kids around here and get on your way. And the guy ignored Sid and continued on his tragic path. At which point Sid reached down, uh, this is seared in my brain, he reached down to his ankles and came up with an uppercut or undercut that caught the guy on his jaw. And the guy was pulled out of his shoes, and landed on the ground. There was a, there was a audible crack when he hit his jaw. I mean, Sid was angry and he turned red. And everybody around it, I don't remember how many guys were around, but there were enough guys to see. And there were guys looking out, I think somewhere on the, uh, the car, the train car already, looking out. Sid really didn't have a choice. He was setting an example, and in the world he grew up, that's how you dealt with guys like that. Sure. You just didn't tolerate it. Yeah. I mean, that was the that was the world for everybody. They 
there was a point where you could, in Chicago, everybody teased everyone else about their ethnicity, but there was a point you didn't, or a line you didn't cross, and that guy crossed it. So, I mean, that was really seared into my brain, and I don't know, I, I talked to George, he said he didn't see it, and I'm curious to know if anybody else who you come across remembers that, but I just wanted to get that down. All right, there you go. Another one in the books, Al Stein. Uh, yeah, what an incredible story, that last part. Uh, Al was a, a lot of fun, but, you know, those moments like that, we, we go through the history project and we, we tell stories and we talk about the past and the present and, and uh, we talk about the things that are the same and how funny it is that traditions have lasted and things like that. And then you have to remember that there were some really nasty traditions that hopefully have at least if not gone away completely, lessened so much that we don't ever have to have a situation where a group of our campers have to be defended against a drunk townie with a punch in the jaw because some guy was ranting. So there you go. All right. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher, org, or just swing by the website check out some of the new stuff. Like I said, the medicine men going up, uh, plaques are going to be going up soon. A lot of new video up there. So check that out. I'm heading to New York tomorrow. Uh, but before I do that, I'm going outside tonight to have a cigar. <laughs>